Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships, and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 75 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. Have you ever had one of those moments where things unexpectedly change? In just one breath, the life you had planned is gone. Challenges come out of nowhere. This is what today's guest, Tony Powell, experienced at the age of 50, and it left her feeling devastated and forced her to rebuild herself and her future. But before we jump into my conversation with Tony, I have an announcement. Creating the weekly podcast is one of my favorite things to do, and it requires a lot of energy and time. And after 75 weeks straight, I am ready for a break to make sure that I can continue to record and publish heartfelt conversations well into the future. I'm taking a break for the month of March and I look forward to being back in your ears the first Friday of April. In the meantime, you have 74 episodes that you can go back and listen to. Now on with today's show. Tony is renowned for her hilarious story-based talks and is one of the most recognised and enjoyed positive culture and wellbeing speakers in Australia. Tony is a creator of the internationally multi-award winning Happy Healthy series of programs that include Happy Healthy Principals, Happy Healthy Deputies, Happy Healthy Educators. These programs are offered by schools, associations and places such as the Leadership Institute in WA. Tony has won awards for both her thought leadership and filmmaking, is the author of two books and in 2006 she was the subject of a heartwarming episode of Australian Story on the ABC. A heads up that this is an adult conversation and contains adult themes. In this conversation we discuss Navigating unexpected challenges of life the power of neuroplasticity, why focusing on the good matters, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tony Powell. Tony, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about tricky times and how we navigate them. Could you take us back to a time in your life that was pretty tricky? I think where I started to really recognize, look, I always knew we could improve. I always knew there was self-improvement and was always working on it from about 19. When I was 50, something really big happened. I was running a film festival, something I'd found and something I'd given my life to, left my business for, volunteered for four years. Like it was the big dream of my life. It was the place where I thought I'd completely found myself and the board saw fit to eject me from the film festival that I'd started. So I felt like I'd lost my baby. And what I discovered was I didn't really have the number of coping skills that I thought I had. And I didn't really know how to feel okay when something bad like this had happened. I just got stuck in anger and resentment and shame and all the things that go with something going wrong. I couldn't get out. And so I just ended up going down, down, down. And a year after it happened, I was in such a bad place that I would way have preferred to have been dead than to have continued in that space. 
And it took me till then to start getting some help and changing things. But it really took that big thing to help me understand, actually, you don't have these skills. I didn't actually know they were skills at the time. But I did discover I didn't have them, whatever they were. It's so interesting because so many of us, it's these moments in our life where we realize, I don't know what to do here. I was never taught how to deal with this. And for you to have that experience at 50 after raising five children, homeschooling five children, and then finding this was your thing, this is what lit you up to have this film festival that really gave you so much personal power and purpose and for that to be taken away, that must have been so heartbreaking. It was a bit like losing a child. You know, when you invest in something, in a dream, and you invest a lot in it, to have it disappear suddenly and with no warning, it's a huge shock because it's like your future disappears, the future you think you're having. And I guess it's the same when anything happens. I remember something similar happening when I had a miscarriage before my, after my fourth child. I remember this future that I had disappeared. And I think that's what loss is like. We lose the future and we get so confused when that happens. Yeah, that's such a beautiful point to think about loss and how loss comes in so many different shapes and sizes. That loss of that future, of that job, of that festival, or the loss of what you thought your family life would look like. And life is filled with loss and filled with unmet expectations along the way every corner. I mean, we kind of expect health and we often don't get it. And that also takes the future you thought you had if your health changes suddenly. So many things, getting fired. We meet these challenges all the time and they can have profound and long-lasting impact. And they don't even need to be massive to have a really big impact. Like the incident itself doesn't need to be that big to have a very big impact on you. That's so true. So what did you start to learn about yourself as you started to recover from this down and tricky part of your life? For that year, I was trying to find some way out of this. So I spent a lot of time looking into antidepressants and because I was already feeling really suicidal and a lot of the side effects listed is suicide, I thought, I don't know, I probably don't need that side effect right at the moment. So I was a bit worried about going down a chemical track, plus I wondered if I took them for one and then went off them, would that help? So I didn't really go down that track. I wanted to try and find something else. And my daughter was really involved in gratitude. Actually, in this whole year, I was working on a documentary on gratitude, which <laughs> now looking back, is hilarious. I was so miserable while I was working on this gratitude thing. But about a year into my <laughs> misery time, I started learning about neuroplasticity and how your brain works. And then I suddenly went, oh, okay, I see why something like gratitude would work. And up to then, probably people saying to me, well, be positive and all that just made me feel like punching them in the head or something. It's like, look on the bright side. Oh, no, I'll kill you. You can't see any bright side. It just seems irrational to tell somebody in that much misery to find the good. But it actually ended up being the key, and I, I wouldn't even go there till I understood the process of why it would make me better. You can tell why I got expelled from school repeatedly because I just wanted to know why, and I kept going, yeah, but give me the actual facts and don't just tell me what to do. So I really needed the why. Once I understood that 
I mean, really, it's as simple as this. What you pay attention to releases neurotransmitters in your brain. So if you pay attention to sadness in your life, your brain goes, whoa, you need all these neurotransmitters that aren't going to make you feel good. They don't make you feel good. And that impacts everything, your relationships, your health, how you think. And, you know, the same is true if we focus on what is good. I could only start at about a minute. I could only focus on something good for about a minute. But starting there got me out of that terrible place and still now gets me out of that terrible place any day I like because I don't want to say these practices that we learn stop pain or stop grief or stop shame or stop fear. They don't, but they let you move them and shift them. They let they let you put them in their right place because we're meant to be ashamed when we do something daft. That's how we can learn that it's not a great thing. And we're meant to feel grief when we lose someone and when everything goes upside down, you lose your business and your house and everything. You should feel terrible. You know, you will feel terrible. You're not going to learn to not do it again if you don't feel terrible. So feeling terrible is fine, but feeling terrible all the time just makes you think the world is terrible, so you don't want to feel that way all the time. So it's it's learning enough skills that you can shift yourself really quickly out of where you are emotionally but also choose to stay if you feel like it. I think that's such a beautiful invitation for all of us to think about is that it's okay to feel sad. It's okay to feel shame, to feel guilt, to feel all the feelings. And then also we have a choice then. Where are we going to direct our energy? Where are we going to direct our attention? Is focusing on this thing over and over again, is it helping me? Or is it starting to become problematic? I think when you recognise that the neural pathways that you create in your brain and you create these pathways, neural pathways are how all information goes through your nervous system. What you think about and pay attention to, what you're learning creates these paths. And that's why when you first start learning something new, say you're learning Spanish, it's like, oh, you can't, you know, even one word is like giant, it's, it's hard because you have no pathway for Spanish in your brain. You haven't laid that down yet. So I imagine all the council road workers in your brain who lay down paths, and you're all network guys, are going, oh, no, we need another pathway for Spanish, quick, and they're busy laying it down. But while that happens, it's hurting you. As you get more Spanish, it's an easier path, and eventually you become fluent, and you don't even think about speaking Spanish because you have a very solid, active neural pathway about it and that's exactly the same as how it works with anything so if you focus on what you're depressed about and we've all got a lot of reasons to be depressed we do then you will create a pathway around that and you will have a smooth easy transition to hang around in that space and I recognize that's what I'd done I'd focused so much on what had gone wrong I'd made this super highway of misery that was the main place my brain defaulted because it was the one I gave the most attention to. And once I started kind of opening up the door to other truth, which was there were many good things in my life, once I opened up the window to that stuff coming in and then gradually let more and more in and gradually made that a focus, then it became really easy to switch out of the old, the other thinking. I could switch very quickly, whereas at the beginning, it was an enormous effort to focus on anything good. Eventually it became an instant thing where I could just 
be stressing about something or scared and go, oh, actually, I don't want to feel like this and flick out of it because I had a new pathway. So once I understood that, then the practices of gratitude, kindness, self-awareness, all these things, looking for good, paying attention to the small things, began to make so much sense. And that is what motivated me to commit to them. Even when I don't actually feel positive, I'll go choose that because I know that it's making the patterns in my brain. You know, our brains get exposed to, I think it's around 11 million items of data every second. That's a lot of data every second. And obviously you can't take in a million, 11 million bits of data, or even a million bits. You can only take about 40 in. And what your brain does, it's trying to serve you. So it wants to make sure the, the bits of data that it brings to your attention that you notice are the ones you're interested in. So if you focus on what is wrong all the time, it will continue to show you what is wrong. It thinks that's your passion. The 40 bits of data that you get will be much more likely to be data around the things that are hard, sad, annoying, that sort of thing. If you focus on the things that are good in your life, then your brain starts to pick this up, starts to find it. And you, you, you've had that when you got pregnant. What happened when you got pregnant the first time? Well, once you get pregnant, all of a sudden everybody around you is pregnant. You're just focusing on like this whole new world that you've never focused on before. All of a sudden you're noticing prams that you've never noticed prams before. What branded prams, what clothes, how you're going to do things where when you're not pregnant or you're not in that stage, you're not looking for those things. And so it's interesting to note just how powerful we can be in where we're directing that attention And I love how you've talked about those road workers. It's effort. It's not easy for us. It's much easier for us to focus on the negative. If I think about a talk that I give and most people are looking like they're having a good time, you look at those few people that aren't and it's so easy to focus on that instead of thinking, well, 90% of the audience are having a really good time. We have this natural inclination to focus on that negative, that negativity bias. And I love how you're inviting us to focus on what is good. Amongst this misery, what are some wonderful things that are also present in my life? It's like, you know when you were a kid and your mum would give you the bowl with the icing to lick after she'd made the cake or the bat or whatever? I like to put it that all of us have this in our hands. We all have a bowl of something delicious that we've been given that we can taste any time we want. We've always got this bowl and it might be in that bowl that you have a yoga class you like, that you have a partner you like, that you have kids who aren't angry at you, you know, that you're healthy or that you've got a job or that you've just been on a holiday. It, it, you know, so many things that go in there that, you know, your jeans fit this morning, you know, your hair went well, whatever. I, I think at least, that, and I've done this so I know it's possible, you could write down today a thousand things about your life that are good. It might be that you live in Australia. It might be that you're not in an earthquake zone or over at the moment, that you haven't just had a major tragedy in your life, that you're not in a war. There's a thousand good things in your life today that you can take notice of if you want to. At the same time, there's a thousand places where you got your foot in shit, and that might be what's going on in the big picture of the world. It might be child slavery. It might be injustice. It might be many things that particularly bother you. It might be global warming, pandemic, but it might be the little things. It might be, you know, how annoying it is when you're driving to work. It might be how you feel about yourself. It might be 
you and your partner aren't getting on very well or there's conflict somewhere or a friend has abandoned you. Again, a thousand things could be a colleague at work. There's a thousand things. I really believe that how we experience our life and if we have satisfaction, if we're happy, if we, I don't mean happy all day, no one's happy all day, no one's happy ever after. This is something you rent every day. Happiness is rented. You choose it every day. If your relationships go well, if your career goes well, the amount of money you make, the physical health that you have are tied to that one picture. Which out of those two images do you want to spend your most time on? Because the one you spend your most time on will inform your brain what you're interested about and it will also release those transmitters and they'll either feel good or bad, depending on which one you spend your most focus on. Now, we've got to clean up shit. Shit happens, we've got to clean it up. Yeah, we've got to spend some time doing stuff we don't like. We've got to spend some time with emotions we're not comfortable with. Sure, they're not bad. In a way, I don't want to call them negative emotions because they're useful, they teach us, they help us. I mean, fear keeps you safe. It's not a bad thing. It's a really good thing. But where do we want this thing to go? What do we want life to be like? It's very difficult to have a happy life if you focus on what's wrong all the time because that becomes your reality and your world. And so it's really, in many ways, there is some work in it, but I don't think it's hard work. I think it's, in many ways, really enjoyable work to start to notice what's actually going right. I'm not coming from a place of being a positive person in naturally. I'm not positive naturally. Naturally, I'm like probably the world's most accomplished complainer. I could complain about almost anything. I used to complain so much that when I started thinking about stopping complaining, I was wondering what I would talk about. So I'm not a positive, happy, naturally optimistic person. This is the decision I make for myself on a daily basis. You're training your brain to focus on what's good and also bringing in that beautiful awareness of knowing that you like to complain. It's something that you're really good at, you're quite skilled at, and what is the cost of that? How is that impacting my relationships, my health, my happiness? Yeah. You know, in workplaces, the boss is kind of coming in going, oh, we don't want complainers, don't complain, not understanding and not really presenting it in a way that people can understand because once you understand what complaining does to you, what complaining does to your physical and mental health and what it does to everybody around you, it begins to be something that isn't that appealing. It's not a huge loss to not complain. It just is something that's so bad for you personally. I've been doing workshops and teaching this sort of work for nearly 12 years. Only repetitive question that I've had at workshops, the only one that's come again and again and again consistently is how do I stop people complaining around me? People may stand there and listen to you, but they do not love you for it. So how did you move from complaining a lot to not complaining as much? What skill did you use? Uh, One wine a day. (laughs) So you gave yourself a dose, dose management? Yeah, dose management. So, okay, I don't want to complain all day, but is this one worth it? You know, should I really spend my time on this one? If I'm going to give myself a little gift of a complaint, I want to make sure it's worth it. So it's almost like when you think of chocolates or sugar, you can have one or two or three, but don't want to be eating the chocolates all day. That complaining, you can do it all day, but at what cost? Yeah, that's a, a good likeness. 
complaining is bad for you, like sugar is bad for you, but it's very tasty. Do it in very small amounts. But I mean, people get into a habit where they come home from work every day and just run through the litany of what happened today at work that's horrible. And they dump that on their partner who's already had their own day. And then they've got to carry that as well. It's an emotional burn that's going to release lots of neurotransmitters that don't make them feel good, that make them feel angry, resentful and protective of their partner. They might be really like get up in arms internally because of what the boss is doing to their partner. This is bad for your relationship. It's bad for the other person. Yes, we definitely need to be able to talk something through, but if it's the same thing that you're going over and over and over, it isn't useful. In fact, research shows that, you know, people have this idea that the more they express their anger, the more the anger is out. No, the angrier you get. The more you express anger, research shows the more angry you become. It doesn't cure anger. I'm not saying you don't need to talk about something. We do need to talk about things. So when it comes to anger, what did you notice about yourself and how you managed it? Probably some of the things that have helped me manage anger is because of so many things over the years, one of the things I really looked into, because I was really confused, why did the board take the festival off me? What happened? And I had to kind of look at what role did I play in that and where things have gone wrong. And then I also kind of started looking at other betrayals and difficulties in my life, trying to see, was there a pattern? Was I doing something? And I think one of the things I realised is that all of us believe that we're living in the same world. That way I see it, we all have this deep belief that the way we see it is the truth. But actually that couldn't be further from the truth. Everybody, all of us, live in a very different world. And that world is created up of what 11 million bits of data is coming into your, what 40 bits are you choosing? What 40 bits did you get offered as a child? What were you seeing and experiencing? You know, what do you interpret this to mean? Because we interpret things entirely differently. Somebody might interpret something that happens as the result of some sin in their life. Or they might, someone else might interpret it as you deserved it. This is a payback. Or it may be an accident to someone. It may be a spiritual lesson to someone. It may be, you know, we live in very, very different worlds and yet we all carry a deep held conviction that the way we see it is the right way. I think that's been one of the biggest things for me is to understand the way I see it is the way I see it and there is no more truth in it than that, only me. So I don't get as angry about different opinions or that sort of thing as I once would have. Does that make sense? Yeah, what I'm hearing is that you started to notice that how you experience one event is very different to how another person experiences that event and that somewhere in between there there's some kind of truth that what we see and what another person sees is just really different. And I know that myself um, in a classroom, one student thinks it's been the best lesson and they've absolutely loved it, they love the subject, and for another student it's horrible. They don't like the subject, they didn't have the same experience, but they were in the same classroom but they take away different meaning from the experience. Definitely different meaning. And the same, you know, someone will say something to you and you will take it in a way that, oh, they've rejected me, they don't like me, that they may not have had that intention at all. You've interpreted that. We do. There's actually a brilliant TED Talk on this. Uh, I can't remember the guy's name, but it's called How We Hallucinate the World. Basically, we're hallucinating 
the world and it isn't that similar to someone else's world, to expect someone to agree with you as being right and unless they agree with you, they're wrong, is a very narrow way to look at things, you know. It isn't that clear cut and I wasted many, many years on anger over things because I knew what was right. In fact, I didn't know what was right. We only think we do. I mean, we're this tiny planet among billions of planets in our universe, but there's billions of universes with billions of planets. The idea that we know anything at all is hilarious, actually. And it's probably one of those things that the more you know, really, the less you know. The more you get into this space, the more you realise that everyone's experience is so unique and everybody comes to situations with their own beliefs, their own stories, their own thoughts, their own expectations, and that's where we can get stuck in anger, complaining, and also resentment. I think resentment is emotion that a lot of people struggle with. And I think resentment, when all this bad stuff happens with the festival and I wasn't coping very well with it, a wonderful man who mentored me, Tony Barry, he's an Australian actor, he just recently died, he said to me that expectation was the crucible of resentment. We go and we expect these things. We have expectations of our boss to do this, that and the other. But actually we may never have agreed with the boss that this would happen. We just have an expectation. And we also we take into marriages an expectation that this person will make us happy. It's not something they could ever do. No one else can make you happy. It's not their job. Uh, we put expectations on children. All sorts of situations we put on an expectation that we actually don't have a right to put on those people. And then we flail around in all this resentment because they didn't do what we decided they should do without ever discussing it with them. It is, you know, people are way too flawed to be the source of your happiness. They're going to fail you. They won't want to, they won't mean to, but, but they do. And I think that's a really good way to start a good base for a marriage or a long-term relationship is to not expect that person to make you happy. That's your job. You're the only one who controls that. And I think that's so important for us to remember is that when it comes to relationships or even a workplace, wherever the relationship is, that it's our job, it's our responsibility to make ourselves happy, to take care of ourselves when we've been fed this narrative for so long by the Jerry Maguires of the world, like you complete me and the other person should make it all unicorn and rainbow or Disney, we're happily ever after, where after the get-together, that's when things do go a little bit pear-shaped. It's kind of like when you first go to a school, you think, oh, this is the most amazing school for the first term, which is amazing. And then all of a sudden in term two, oh, things are a little bit different. I'm not quite sure about my head of department. I'm not quite sure about this. And my other school used to do it better. We start to get this reality. So we have this honeymoon phase in all the relationships of our lives. And then we have to be with the reality. And learning to tolerate that reality is quite a skill. And I think it's something they don't mention about marriage. I heard a podcast. It was Kristen Bell and her husband, Dax Shepard, and I think it was the first episode of his podcast. And I think one of the very first things she said, I hate him about 60% of the time. And then I thought, oh, that is what it is. We marry these people. We're with them for a really long time. If you stay in the same room with someone for 100 hours, they're going to annoy the shit out of you by 100 hours, you know. There's going to be things about them that will annoy you. 
and being who we are, humans, for some reason, we just really like looking at people's shit. That's We like to find the wrong bits and point that out. I don't know why. Gossip about it, etc. I think that's what happens in marriages. People aren't told there will be things about your partner you and that annoy you to death and the secret of a good marriage is learning to live with those happily and not try to change them because research shows that about 69% of conflict in a relationship with the person you chose, a partner or a life partner, is unresolvable, 69%. It's unresolvable. And yet if we spend our marriages trying to resolve these situations that are unresolvable because they're cultural from childhood or whatever they are, then we just use our energy in the wrong place, whereas we could use our energy in that marriage building up that person, making them feel good and valued and not kind of harping on what's wrong but maybe harping on what's right a little bit more, shifts that balance and and reduces all that resentment in the marriage I think people have this very fairy tale idea of what marriage will be. I consider myself to have an extremely happy marriage, and he annoys the shit out of me a lot of the time, like I do him. But we we try to take that with a whole lot of humour and enjoy that annoyance and laugh about it. And I think this is one of those lessons that we didn't learn at school is as much as there are things about people that annoy us, we annoy other people. Like no one's going to like every part of us. No one is perfect. We're all flawed. We're all annoying. We all frustrate each other. It's just a part of being human. And some people have the idea that they're not annoying because the other people are annoying. No, you're just as annoying. I like to kind of think of it like a star. You're a star, but, boy, you've got a lot of points. And when you get with another star, there's point. They get to each other. They're all so nice and shiny and lovely and we need them, but, you're pointy. And we're all pointy. And learning to navigate that is so powerful. And also to be able to own our own stuff and to see how we're contributing to dynamics. I'm thinking about teaching in a classroom. If you're focusing on that one student that you have this story about them that's not that helpful, you're always going to catch them doing that thing. And I remember one lecturer saying to me earlier on, Meg, it's a skill to be able to to catch them being good. Catch them being good often and early as much as you can. Just focus on what's good. Yes, there's a million things that aren't ideal, but let's focus on what's good because it really is full circle in this conversation that for that young person, they're probably always focusing on what's not right about them. They get told from lesson to lesson that they're not good enough, they're not to standard, they're not meeting expectations. And so breaking that cycle on noticing what is good what you have done well. And so there's this individual level on focusing on the good, but then there's the relationship level of focusing on what's good in others. It is our temptation to focus on what is bad. That's what we get around and gossip about, not what's good about other people. So I like to challenge people to be kind of a good gossip about the good stuff of of other people. That is such a good idea. Like how can you spread good things, notice people doing great things? That's one thing that I've been working with schools recently is in your staff meeting, share stories of impact, share stories of the choices that you made that made a difference. When you felt like just yelling, what did you do instead? How did you catch yourself? Those moments where you feel like 
oh, this is too hard and you want to complain, how do you redirect your attention? And they're the stories that we need to be sharing more and more because that's how we develop our skill. How do people change from complaining all the time to not doing it as much? Like these are the stories that we need to be sharing more and more often. I went to work with a school they called me in because there was 70% of the teachers were very low morale and it was publicly published. So the principal freaked out. One of the things they did routinely in the school, well, the principal did, was he just walked randomly into classrooms to find what was wrong, to see where the teacher was going wrong with their lesson and that sort of stuff, and would correct the teacher in front of the kids. His whole focus was where are they messing up? And he would walk in without notice. Now, he created such fear such shame, you know, people being humiliated. And he was wondering why he has a low morale problem. So I said, okay, if you insist on doing these things, then you have to go in and look for what's good. That's all you're looking for. What is good? Just change that one thing. I ended up working for them a year and we flipped that to a 70% positive morale in that 12 months. And we did a lot of things, but that was a really key thing was he only looked for what was wrong. So he only found what was wrong. Gosh. I can't imagine what that would have been like having a principal walk in and knowing that they're looking for what you're not doing right. That would make you feel horrible and not good for culture because in his mind he may have been thinking, I'm doing them a favour, I'm helping them get better, I'm pointing out what's not working to help them get better and lots of us have this temptation to point out to everybody what they're doing wrong just to be helpful but really it's not helpful. He definitely thought he was being helpful, he definitely did and he definitely wanted to improve the school and definitely was making great headway in improving academic areas. He just wasn't making such headway in improving cohesion and relationships within the school. When he started looking for good, that all changed. And that also makes staff feel much more comfortable that when he's walking in, he's looking for what I am doing well. He's noticing the impact that I'm having in my classroom. You know, we get together with our girlfriends and then rip our husbands to shreds. It's exactly the same thing. If you keep doing that, if you keep talking about what that partner, that friend, that mother-in-law, that whatever is doing wrong, all you'll ever notice about them. That's what you'll notice. You'll miss the other bit of them. And there may be really wonderful bits that you're going to miss because your focus is where they let you down or where you think they let you down. Tony, to wrap up this incredible conversation, I'd love to invite you to complete four sentences. Are you up for doing that? Ooh, okay. (laughs) I am inspired by? I am inspired by humanity, by people who keep getting up and going and doing things regardless. People who get up and go to work in the middle of a war, people who are digging people out of trenches and buildings in Turkey and Syria, people who get up and do stuff against the odds. People blow me away. When life feels hard? Start smiling. Smile, it makes your brain think you're happy. (laughs) Your brain's kind of dumb. Like in a way, your brain is kind of dumb. It doesn't really know that you focusing on the way that boyfriend let you down 18 years ago isn't real now. So it gives you all the stuff it thinks it's real now. So your brain's quite dumb in that sense. An underrated skill is? Oh, happiness. I don't even think most people know it's a skill. They think it's a circumstance. They think it's something they're going to get to. They think it's something someone else will give them. They think it's something they're entitled to, but they don't think it's a skill. And I'm looking forward to? So many things have just occurred to me. 
Today I'm looking forward to going to have lunch with my son. Tony, thank you so much for sharing parts of your story and the lessons you've learned along the way so we can all make better choices and bring our attention to what is working and what is going well in our life. And thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. My pleasure. It was great fun. I hope this conversation has opened your mind and inspired you to take deliberate action in your life so you can feel, function and relate better. To learn more about today's incredible guest and the wonderful work they are doing in the world, see the show notes for all the ways that you can connect. If you love the show, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening or reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn and let me know what resonated most with you. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next event, learn more about my game-changing wellbeing programs or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations when I return in April. Until then, take care and take action.